Remember, uh, maybe, that in 1 Samuel 10, uh, Samuel anointed Saul as the king. So we have made it to that point in uh, the history of the church. Saul is beginning his reign as king, and this chapter records basically his first actions after he has been crowned king. 1 Samuel 11 says, Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said unto Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition will we make a covenant, will I make a covenant with you, that I may thrust out all your right eyes, and lay it for a reproach upon all Israel. And the elders of Jabesh said unto him, Give us seven days, so that we might send messengers to all the coasts of Israel. And then, if there is no man to save us, we will come out to you. Then came the messengers of Gibeah to Saul. Excuse me, the messengers to Gibeah of Saul. And told the tidings in the ears of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. And behold, Saul came after the herd, after the herd out of the field. And Saul said, What ails the people that they weep? And they told him the news from the men of Jabesh. And then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard those tidings, those news, that news, and his anger was kindled greatly. He took a yoke of oxen. He hewed them or sawed them into pieces and sent them throughout all the coasts of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, Whosoever does not come forth after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done unto his oxen. The fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. When he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000, the men of Judah 30,000. They said to the messengers that came, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by that time, the sun be hot, you shall have help. And the messengers came, showed it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, they're speaking to Nahash and the Ammonites, and you shall do with us all that seems good to you. And it was so on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies. They came into the midst of the army or the host in the morning watch, and they slew the Ammonites until the heat of the day. It came to pass that they which remained were scattered. And not even two of them were left together. And the people said to Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring those men, that we may put them to death. Saul said, There shall not a man this day be put to death. For today the Lord has wrought salvation in Israel. And Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. And all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. There are often times in life 
When you're about to do something that you don't actually need to do. But you don't know that you don't need to do it until someone comes and tells you that you don't need to do it. One example would be when you're doing a task for a school or for a job. You're not quite sure what to do. Children, have you ever had an assignment where you didn't quite know what to do, but you thought you could figure it out on your own? You make a decision, and just before you go through with it, you get this idea that you're going to ask somebody for help. In the Lord's providence, that person was placed there. They have experience doing what you're doing, and upon asking them, they give this little laugh. And they smirk and they say, you don't have to do that. Here's a better way. What do you do? (laughs) You breathe a sigh of relief and get back to work and do it the better way. Remember in 1 Samuel that the people have just requested a king. They thought it was the better way to to prefer an earthly king. Is an earthly king better for Israel? No, not at all. If you were to look at 1 Samuel 12, 12, you get a little more context for why they asked for a king. Evidently, Nahash and the Ammonites had been knocking on the door for quite some time. And when he came to their door, the people thought they were going to do one thing, but in fact, they did not need to do that. They thought they were going to covenant with Nahash, but instead, God orchestrated it that they would not. There are even testimonies outside of the canon of, of our canon of Scripture. You can find it in the Septuagint if you know what that is. Uh, where this chapter begins with a description of Nahash doing this very thing, plucking out the right eye of all kinds of nations all around. And it was just Israel's turn. And because of that, because they had heard of Nahash's reputation, let's assume it's a true history, If it's not, it doesn't really affect anything because the the idea is still there because of chapter 12, verse 12. They asked for a king like the other nations because they didn't have faith to believe that their heavenly king could protect them from Nahash and the Ammonites. He was knocking on the door. But why the right eye? That's one of those weird details that the Bible gives that, you know, you could wonder about it maybe. One writer says, Based on historic testimony, how battles were performed and carried out in those days, they would normally cover their left eye with a shield, and their right eye would be the line of sight for attack. Well, if you don't have a right eye, you can't see. You can't fight because you can't use your shield, and you don't go into battle without your shield. Now, you can understand the temptation of the people, right? They had heard about... Uh, They had heard about Nahash. They had heard about the Ammonites. They began taking their eyes off the Lord. You can understand the temptation, right? You begin taking your eyes off the Lord. Nahash rolls up to your front door. Nahash is sitting across the table from you. They're texting you, whatever the case is. And you're not setting your mind on the things above where Christ is, where your life is hidden with Christ and God. And what you do is you end up turning to worldly measures for help. For help with your marriage. For help with parenting. For help with job decisions, for help with college decisions, for help with choosing a church, 
choosing a house, etc. What the people did was they were providentially spared from making a grave mistake and making that covenant offer with Nahash. And seeing this text, I want to lay it out for you that you might see that Jehovah is the covenant Lord who gives His Spirit to glorify Himself through the salvation of His people. Our God is the covenant Lord who gives His Spirit to glorify Himself through the salvation of His people. We'll break that out into three points. The first is Jehovah, the covenant Lord. And I want to accent this point up front because our text shows the people of God being tempted to go into a covenant with someone else. They're being tempted to go into a covenant with the Ammonites and by implication, the God of the Ammonites. A covenant is a trust. It's a relationship. It's a binding relationship with stipulations that bring about blessing or cursing. We're reminded, maybe, maybe you were as we read through, reminded of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Remember how God split the carcasses? right? And he passed through it himself. You have similar imagery here. Nahash, though, is not the covenant Lord. And they are forbidden from making covenants with him. He is not worthy of their trust. Only the Lord Jehovah is. The Lord God Almighty would have them swear fealty, allegiance, and obedience to him alone. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if they would turn from him here and fear Nahash even more, what they would do is forsake all wisdom. There's another reason to accent the fact that they should only make covenants with God, especially in this context of Nahash, the Ammonite, coming up. Do you know what Nahash means in Hebrew? What the Hebrew word Nahash is? It's a straight transliteration, basically. My Hebrew student just went to the bathroom, so he can't tell you. It's one of the Hebrew words for serpent. He's a serpent king coming against the people of God. Had the people chosen to submit to him, they would have been submitting to a serpent king. Does that sound familiar? The evil one would certainly cackle about it. So when he says he wants to bring shame upon all Israel, you understand what's going on. With his name carrying that meaning, on the flip side, you begin to see that the, the place that the Lord is giving to Saul. Saul is another Adam figure. He is a servant of the Lord. This is another example of the Lord's kindness to his people. How even in their desiring a king, and what we were told that their desiring a king was actually rejecting God... This example of the Lord's kindness is showing them another image once again of the Lord Jesus Christ who is coming, even though they had rejected him. He's preparing them for Jesus Christ. And in Romans 5, Paul compares Adam and Christ. They are the two most important men in the scriptures. All prominent men in Israel after Adam and leading up to Christ were simply hollow images of Christ especially the kings, prophets, and priests. But the greater and the last Adam, he would defeat the greater and the last serpent king. 
Someone among the covenant people, hearing Nahash's name, had to know. They had to be thinking about it when they heard his name. I know what that word means. I know what this battle's about. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they did. What they do is they turn to look for one, a man, from the earth who would save them. Because they knew that if they were going to get out of this, they were going to have to fight. Nahash and his army weren't just going to pack up and go home if they came back and said, Hey, we got somebody to take care of us. You can go. What's an application that we can draw from this? What's really happening, or what is one of the main threads in this first little bit here, is that the people of God are being tempted. They're being tempted to trust another. They're being tempted to be drawn into a relationship with another covenant master. And the point I want to draw to your attention is just that you are not exempt from being tempted to covenant with another master. That's what patterns of sin are. They're covenants with other masters. And the Lord refuses to have a people that will do that. You are in covenant with the Lord if you are a baptized Christian, living your life under His rule, having faith in Jesus Christ, receiving the means of grace. But that does not mean you will not be tempted. You will be tempted by powerful enemies. Let's call them modern-day Nahashes. The serpent king is still very much at work, walking about as a roaring lion. Don't be surprised. And don't be unaware. As Peter says in 1 Peter 4.12, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery trials that you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. Remember, Jehovah alone is the Lord of the covenant. And He is stronger than all others that would seek to draw you away from Him. So Jehovah the covenant Lord is the first point. The second is Jehovah gives His Spirit to glorify Himself. And the Lord's providence, those from Jabesh go to the hometown of Saul. That's why it's called Gibeah of Saul. Right? They're going to their new king. And they're seeking someone who would hopefully save them from the Ammonites. They go to Gibeah. They share the news. And it brings the people into great mourning. Children, the Bible tells us that they didn't just cry, but they cried loudly. You know the difference in crying and crying with a loud voice, right? You can probably tell if something is wrong with a sibling of yours based on the way the cry sounds. Right? The same type of thing is happening here. A special and heavy type of sadness had come over the people. They were afraid of Nahash and the Ammonites. And Saul heard about it. But before we get into what happens with Saul, notice he hears and he asks what's going on. But before we get into that, let's talk about Gibeah for a moment. Now, I know the adult Sunday school class is studying the book of Judges. Not sure if y'all have made it to chapters 19 to 21 yet. But in those chapters, Gibeah is a central place. But it's a central place because it is more like, uh, it, is, uh, it is like the worst city in the Bible. Gibeah is basically Sodom 2.0 in Judges 19 to 21. Certainly you remember Sodom and Gomorrah, right? 
You remember, children, you remember that story with Lot and his wife? Lot comes out of the city and brings his wife with him, and she looks back and turns into a pile of salt. You remember that, Lot and Abraham and all them. But Gibeah is a place of abundant wickedness, and it also belongs to the tribe of Benjamin, of which Saul is a member. Now let me prove to you, or just highlight for you just a moment, why uh, Gibeah is so bad and why it is very interesting that the Lord pulls Saul from there. What happens in Judges 19 through 21? We have the use of the phrase, sons of Belial. Remember that with Eli? Sons of Belial is what his sons were. They tried to take a Levite who had come to town and was staying with a man. They tried to take the Levite and lay with him. The man of the house in which the Levite is staying in Gibeah offers his daughter and the Levite's concubine to these sons of Belial. Those sons, those wicked men, they refuse, but the Levite persuades them to take his concubine for the night. She ends up dead. And what does the Levite do? He loads her up and takes her home, but that's not all. He divides her into 12 pieces, sending a piece of her to each of the tribes of Israel. That's horrific. It's disgusting. But this leads to the city of Gibeah being attacked by the rest of Israel. Chapter 20 and 21 is about that, mainly chapter 20. But additionally, the text records what they decided to do for the men who remained from the tribe of Benjamin after they were destroyed for that heinous act. They were going to get their wives from Jabesh, Gilead. That's where they drew their wives from. Why does all of this matter? Because a place that was full of corruption, Gibeah, A place that was driven to the dust by the Lord's army. That is the place that they came to look for salvation. And it is out of that place that the Lord provided it in Saul. We could almost just substitute the word Sodom when you see Gibeah. It will carry the same kind of weight. It's too simple, though, to say that the Lord provided salvation for his people in King Saul. It's more accurate to say that the Lord provided salvation for his people by his spirit. The spirit that came upon Saul, producing a holy anger that led him to battle with 330,000 soldiers. Did you notice that Saul does a version of what the Levite did in Judges 19? divides something into 12 pieces and sends it out across the land. He sends something dead and chopped up to each of the tribes as a warning or a threat. He did this to produce fear in the people. And it is, it is exactly what happened. They were afraid. They, they feared the Lord. The end of verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one voice to go out against the Ammonites in the wake of their spirit-led earthly king. Now, this giving of the Spirit to Saul, it has many scriptural parallels as well. Gideon, remember he receives the Spirit right before he does what he's going to do? Samson receives the Spirit before he does what he's going to do? The church receives the Spirit in the book of Acts before it goes out on its mission? Who else? Jesus. Matthew 3 and 4, what we read. He has the Spirit come upon him right before 
he goes into the wilderness to battle the devil and defeat him. There's a very particular parallel with Samson that is shown in the Hebrew. The same verb is used to describe the way that the Spirit came upon Samson and the way that the Spirit came upon Saul. For all the other judges that received the Spirit in this way, it's a different verb being used. The Lord's probably trying to highlight for us that Saul is a greater Samson or a type of Samson, a shadow, a figure like Samson. None of the other judges have that particular verb. It's like the Spirit rushes upon Saul and Samson, like the Spirit rushes in Acts 2 and fills the house. One writer says this, The Spirit came on him, that is Saul, mightily, as he did many of the judges. But the Spirit's descent, the coming of the Spirit, was always a prelude to holy war. Just as the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost to equip the church rather than just one man, to equip the church to carry out its holy war of preaching, Saul also gathers 330,000 men, which was not a, not a very large, which was not only a very large army, but it emphasizes the number three, which might remind us of Gideon as well. The spirit you see, is the means by which God would equip Saul to bring about a victory for himself and his people. It's no coincidence that for the very first battle of Saul, he faces a king whose name means serpent, and he faces a king right after he is given or has the Holy Spirit rush upon him. It's almost a direct parallel of what Jesus or what happens with Jesus' baptism. The Spirit comes down and is preparing God's people, God's servant for holy war. And the Spirit is the means by which God would equip Saul to bring about a victory for himself and for his people. Without the Spirit, we can safely assume that they would lose. But with the Spirit, a victory secures glory for the Lord. He gave the Spirit to make the battle about him rather than about Saul or the people. You see, something about our Lord is He will not share His glory with another. He would have all the glory for Himself, so He gives His own self. He gives the Spirit to rush on Saul and moves him. Remember how Saul was at the end of chapter 10? He moves him from a man who is reluctant to be a king to a man who knows how to guide and influence people to victory. There's an apparent change in Saul. And it is all due to the Holy Spirit. Because it is due to the Holy Spirit, the glory belongs to the Lord. And God gives us His Spirit to show that we cannot do a thing without Him. Some think the question of the life of Saul is this. Was Saul a believer or not? First of all, that is impossible to know. Therefore, you should not dwell on it. The better question is, why would the Lord give his spirit to a king of his people who had just rejected him? Why would he be that kind at all? Well, he did it because he loves his people. And he's a gracious and forbearing father. 
even in their weakness. He did it because they were going to face the serpent king and his glory for all of history would be on the line. The first Adam had failed. God was going to make sure this one did not. The last point is Jehovah, the covenant Lord, he gives his spirit, that's what we've gone through, to glorify himself, and he does it through the salvation of his people. So notice that God gave his spirit to Saul so that Saul would go out and wage war with the people and bring about salvation. The word save or redeem occurs, I think it's three times in this short little chapter. It's a key phrase or key word. What did the Lord accomplish through glorifying himself by the giving of the Spirit? He accomplished the salvation of his people. And Saul is so guided by the Spirit that it made him merciful to those who had opposed his election. Saul is just a, he's a confusing figure. He really is. And later in life, he's just driven crazy. Basically, by David and his place in the Lord's plan. But here, he has an opportunity to put these to death who had questioned his reign, and he doesn't do it. He says, today is a day of celebration. Remember the children of Belial in chapter 10, verse 27? It says, the children of Belial said, how shall this man save us? Well, God answers that question in chapter 11. He can't, but God can by his spirit, and that's what he does. Though they had sought a king outside of the revealed will of God, in his secret will, he had mysteriously decreed this to be a means of their salvation. He does all things according to his choosing. And as we said two weeks ago, the Lord sovereignly orchestrated this to prefigure Jesus Christ, who also received the Spirit before going to do battle with the serpent king. This brings glory to God. He handled their disobedience in a way that would make him look even greater. It is this greatness of his that led his people to respond in Worship. When they restore or renew the kingdom in verse 14, it means they renewed covenant with God. They recommitted themselves to Him out of the kindness that they just experienced. I mean, just imagine being one of those thousands of people realizing that Saul is only leading you because you rejected your God, and yet God still granted the victory. But he wanted to make sure you, they knew that they could only do it with him. That's why he sent the Spirit. Now, the most qualified earthly king is helpless without the Spirit of the Lord. The most qualified earthly king is helpless without the Spirit of the Lord. God made it this way so his people would trust him. Because that's the... Uh, one of the overarching questions of 1 Samuel 11. Why didn't the people trust God? And then why did he give them reasons even more to trust him? Right? As you face temptation, as you face the various nahashes, as you face the work of the serpent king, do you trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding? Or do you, as Israel, put him to the test 
and do things the safe way. Being more willing to live at peace with the world, with Nahash, than you are to suffer with the Lord Jesus Christ. The sufferings of the Lord Jesus on the cross are not something that you and I can imitate because we sin daily. He never sinned. But he has defeated the serpent king and is taking this entire period between his first and second advents to do a victory lap. You read the book of Hebrews and the defeat of Satan is spoken of in the past tense. It has already happened. And we are just living in light of it until he comes again to mop everything up. Without the Lord, who is walking this victory lap, running it, skipping Without him, if you refuse his reign, if you refuse his kingship, you don't get to choose a different serpent king to face. It's the same one that everyone else faces. He is among the long list of things that oppose you and would gouge out your eye that enables you to fight. Have you ever noticed that? How the temptations that the the enemy brings you into, when you give in to them, it disables you from fighting. It takes all the strength away because your trust has moved. Your faith has shifted. You cannot play offense or defense if your only working eye is covered by a shield. You can't see anything. You're functionally blind. Children, it would be like, you ever seen the pirates, how they wear a patch on their eye? It would be like someone having their eye plucked out and then putting the patch on their good eye. That's the image that's being given here. You are functionally blind if you submit to the Nahashes of this world. I plead with you today by the mercy of God in Christ to be reconciled to God. Turn to Him in repentance and faith, and He will turn to you. Now, if you tuned out when I said that because you think you're so confident and assured in Christ, friends, you need to read the Bible again. Repentance is not a one-time thing. Trusting in Christ is not something you do once in your life and then just try to be good the rest of it. God speaks to His covenant people and says, Repent. Turn from your ways and I will turn to you. As we read in Psalm 80. This is a call to those made in the image of God to renew covenant with Him this very day. He promises His Spirit to all who receive the sacrament of baptism and call on Him in faith. Don't ever forget that, that baptism carries that promise of the Holy Spirit. And you can't wash off a baptism. It doesn't mean that no matter how you live, you'll have the Holy Spirit in you. That's not the point. But there's this objective presence of the promise of God's Spirit over you for all of life, whether you act on it or not. You can't wash it away. I charge you today, no matter whether you'd say you are a Christian or not, to call on the Lord in covenant renewal. Renew the relationship with Him. Call on the Lord to save you from His wrath. As He hears you and responds, your allegiance changes. Your relationship to the serpent king changes. And I say, dear congregation, trust the working of God, the Holy Spirit in your life to bring you through every battle as a victor. Trust the Lord. 
to the glory of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Trust not in princes. Trust not in chariots. As Proverbs 3 says, lean not on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and in all your ways acknowledge him. And he promises to direct your path even when there's a Nahash in the way. Amen. Let's pray.